0: Welcome to the Gospel House Podcast. My name is Pastor Jeremy. I'm the pastor at the Gospel House. And I've got a special recording for you today of our Palm Sunday service. The audio for our stream didn't work on Palm Sunday. So if you checked out our YouTube video and were frustrated because you couldn't hear the sermon, we've got it for you here on the podcast. And uh, we're going to jump right in here. We celebrated Palm Sunday Uh, this past Sunday, where we talk about and we celebrate uh, Jesus's arrival into Jerusalem and what kicks off Holy Week that we're in the middle of right now. So we'll start by reading from Luke chapter 19, verses 35 to 48. The Word of God says this, They brought it to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. Now, as he was going, they were spreading their cloaks on the road. And as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the king, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And yet some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus replied, I tell you, if these stop speaking, the stones will cry out. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known on this day, even you, the conditions for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes." For the days will come upon you when your enemies will put up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and throw down your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And Jesus entered the temple grounds and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, It is written, And my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers." And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to put him to death, and yet they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging onto every word he said. This is week three of our Reverse the Curse sermon series, and today we turn our attention to Adam. And I really love what the Holy Spirit did in this sermon series. Now most of you know this, I'll be the first to admit it. I'm not smart enough to plan out my sermon series to come this well together because today we look at this Palm Sunday celebration and now we turn to Genesis 3 and this curse that God lays on Adam and we have to ask the question, what does the curse on Adam have to do with Palm Sunday? And the two actually fit together so perfectly, more perfect than I could ever work out on my own. So praise God, today we see how this curse on Adam comes together with what Jesus talks about as he enters into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. So let's look at Genesis 3. This is from verses 17 and 19. It says, Then to Adam, God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. With hard labor you shall eat from it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, yet you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground." because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Last week we talked about the curse that fell on Eve and Eve bore the pain of childbirth. She became so to speak the mother of pain. Through Eve pain entered into the world. Now Adam has this curse pronounced on him and he gets the pain of the fields, the pain of work. But as we're going to look at today, it is much bigger than just the pain in his work. In Adam's curse, we see three things. First, we see another partnership ruined. Last week we talked about how in Eve's curse, we see the partnership between man and woman ruined. Today we see another partnership ruined. Then we tie in Palm Sunday with this curse with Adam, and we see that in Adam's case, the rocks cry out, but we don't. And then finally, in the last point, we see how Jesus perfectly reverses this curse. So let's start. First, we see another partnership ruined. In God's perfect garden, this Garden of Eden, because of Adam's choice to go his own way instead of going God's way another partnership is ruined. And this partnership, we we miss it a lot of times. This has gotten lost in the church today. And if I'm being honest, this is one of the first things that I saw in the church that we turned political, a biblical point that we made political. And just preaching this will get you labeled a certain way by some people. But because this tends to be a major emphasis point by a political party, there are members of other political parties that refuse to believe this. But the, que- the problem is, when we do that as Christians, we're looking at things as political points. And we can't, as Christians, read the Bible looking at political points. We have to read the Bible and ask the question, not, is it political, but is it biblical? Because what is the partnership that gets ruined? And to find this answer, we have to do what we did with Eve last week. Last week, we jumped back and we looked at at the creation account of Eve and who Eve was created to be. So let's jump back and look at the creation account and look at how this partnership was supposed to go. We're looking specifically at Adam's partnership with the rest of creation, with nature, It says this in Genesis one. So God created man in his own image in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every animal of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. That verse in verse 28. God says that God blesses Adam and Eve and says to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. But let's go back to this. Let's ask the question, What is the biblical way to rule over something? We talked about this last week with Adam and Eve and the biblical way for a husband to rule over his wife, for a husband to be head of his family, of his wife. Jesus is not the head of the church who rules with an iron fist, who beats us into submission, who demands obedience and screams and yells and barks down. That's not how Jesus rules over us. So why do we think that that's how we can rule over other people? That's not how man was called to rule over nature. Everywhere, when we look at how God rules over us, he rules over us with mercy and kindness, constantly doing what's in our best interest. In in the case of Jesus in the gospel, laying down his life, Jesus, is head of the church, lays down his life, So that the church might be made clean. So when Adam and Eve are asked to rule over nature, when they're asked to rule over, to subdue the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and every living thing that moves, they're asked to do so in the same way that God rules over us. And what happens in response to this is that nature cheerfully submits to man's rule. Nature goes along with man's rule, and nature does what it's supposed to do. It bears fruit. We see this continued in Genesis 2, starting in, in verse 8. It says, The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused every tree to grow that is pleasing to the sight of and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then, skipping ahead to verse 15, it says, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and tend it. The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden, you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For on the day that you eat from it, you will certainly die. This is how the whole world was supposed to be. God planted the garden. Notice who plants the garden, right? Adam and Eve didn't have to do any of the work of getting things started. They didn't have to do any of the work of planting the seed, of of doing any of this. God planted the garden. And then he put man in the garden that he made and told man, it's your job to cultivate the garden, to tend to the garden, to work the garden. Now, make no mistake, we get this faulty idea that work is bad, right? That when we get to heaven, we're all going to sit back on cots and have our food spoon fed to us and you know somebody else is going to take care of all the tasks and we're just going to sit back and relax because that's the good stuff, right? Sitting back and relaxing with our feet up is the good stuff, but that's not how it was, y'all. This is before the curse. This is the world that God made and God made man to work. God called man to work. We see this breaking down in our culture today. We've got people who refuse to work. And we see society as a whole breaking down because of it. And fact of the matter is, go back to Genesis. Look at how we were created. And the reason we are breaking down is because man was made to work. God called Adam to this garden to work. This was going to be work. It was going to be hard work, but it was going to be fruitful work. Before the curse, Adam's work would bear fruit. And why? Because nature was going to work in partnership with Adam. As Adam worked the fields, as Adam tended to the garden, as he worked with these trees and plants, nature would bear fruit. And the reason nature would bear fruit is because that's what God made it to do. But then Adam and Eve decided to ignore verses 16 and 17 here. And man's partnership with nature quickly dissolved. Because we see the curse that God lays forth on Adam in Genesis 3 that says, cursed is the ground because of you. With hard labor you shall eat from it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, yet you shall eat the plants of the field. Nature no longer works with man, and we still see this evident today. Not because nature is disobedient. Nature is nothing but obedient to God. But nature no longer works with man because of man's disobedience. See, God doesn't give nature the same choice that he gives us. I know this becomes a hot-button theological issue between Calvinists and Arminianists. That's just fancy ways of dividing up Christianity. There are some set of Christians that believe that God predestines everything. You have no choice. God predestines everything. And then there are others who believe that man has complete free will. You have the right to choose whatever you want. The problem that we have with that argument is that God exists outside of time. God sees everything going on right here in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the creation of it all. And he sees everything that's going to happen in the book of Revelation at the end of time. And it all, everything from Genesis to Revelation and everything in between, it's all the same to God. It all happens on the same timeline, in the same sphere, in the same plane. Like God sees it all as if it's happening right now because God exists outside of time. So every decision that I make, God knows what I'm going to choose, which makes some people say, well, that's predestination. He knows what you're going to choose. But that doesn't make me any less capable of making the choice. I don't know what I'm going to have for dinner tonight, but God does. That does not mean that I'm not free to go out and instead of eating whatever my wife makes for my family tonight, that I'm going to go to Jimmy John's and get a sub. I'm still free to do that. I can still make that choice, but God knows that I'm going to make that choice. So I don't think we have to choose. Is it completely free will or is it predestination? I think the answer is yes, both. It's both. God predestines us because he knows what our choices are going to be, but that doesn't make me any less capable of making that choice. But see, God doesn't give nature that same option. Nature doesn't have a choice. It doesn't have the free will that we have, which means when God speaks, nature has to do. So when Adam used to work the fields, God said, be fruitful. And the fields were fruitful back to Adam. But as soon as Adam disobeyed, God said, Fields, from now on, you bear thorns and thistles. From now on, it is the sweat of Adam's brow. It is this painful labor. And we talked about this last week, but that same word that is used in the pain of childbirth for Eve that same Hebrew word is used here. It's translated here in the NASB 2020 as hard labor, but others translate that as painful laborers, toil, toil, toiling labor, whatever. It's that same Hebrew word with pain. You are going to tend to this ground and with pain, you are going to watch as the ground no longer bears fruit for you. We learn this point this point of of nature being nothing but obedient to God. We learn this from Jesus, and of all places, we learn it on Palm Sunday as he enters Jerusalem and the Pharisees tell him to tell his disciples to stop worshiping him. Jesus lays out this core truth of the universe to the Pharisees. And he says, this is in Luke 19 that we read from, starting in verse 39. It says, yet some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus replied, I tell you, if these stop speaking, the stones will cry out. The rocks will cry out. But why? Because we don't. Even if all of these people... Were to remain silent as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. Jesus says that all of nature would break out in praise because of who he is. Now, see, when we read these today, a lot of us Christians, even people who just they, they aren't familiar with the worldview of that time, we breeze right past these statements that Jesus makes, and we never think twice about them. The gospels become such common knowledge to us that we kind of just take it for granted. But, but look at what Jesus is saying here. We, we go through the Bible and, and we have a tendency to look at this and be like, man, these Jews, like what jerks, they wanted to kill Jesus. What did Jesus ever do? But, but there's a reason that these Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. You know, there's, there's a common uh, uh, objection to Christianity where a lot of people will say, well, I don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. I don't believe that he's God. But I do believe that he was a great moral teacher, that he was a moral man. He was a good man. He, you know, he had, he had good teachings. And, and, you know, C.S. Lewis lays this out really plainly in his book, Mere Christianity. He says it better than I ever could. But to paraphrase kind of what Lewis says is what Jesus is saying here. And what Jesus consistently says throughout all of the gospel accounts, do not allow. And this is something the Pharisees understood back then that we don't get now. Because anybody who comes and says, I am God, worship me. I am God. You must obey me or you can't get into heaven. You must do the things that I say or you can't get into heaven. Y'all, we know this, right? If somebody shows up at the Walmart parking lot and starts saying the things that Jesus said, he's not going to be at the Walmart parking lot very long, is he? The police are going to show up and he's going to get a really quick escort to a really nice hospital where really great doctors are going to start evaluating him and probably put him on medication, right? Because the guy's nuts. That's the first thing that everyone thinks. So to, to come at Jesus and... And say he was a good moral teacher. That's not a choice that he gives us. When Jesus shows up outside Jerusalem. Riding on a donkey. And the Pharisees say. Tell these people to stop worshipping you. And Jesus says. I tell you. If these people stop worshipping me. All of nature. Is going to jump in. And start. You're going to hear these rocks cry out in worship. If First of all. If Jesus is being honest, but he just missed it, then he's absolutely insane, right? If Jesus is lying and saying, all of these people need to worship me, but he knows he's not the son of God, then he is nothing short of the devil himself. Or we have this third option, that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. This is what the Pharisees didn't want. Because if Jesus is God, then they've missed it completely. If Jesus isn't God, but is saying that he is God, Jewish law, that's a capital offense. He is dead where he stands. The command is to stone him and put him down because this is idolatry of the worst degree. Not only is Jesus allowing people to worship him, but he's saying, if these people stop, all of nature is going to start worshiping me. So those are your three options with Jesus. And really what Jesus is laying out here on Palm Sunday, what he's challenging the Pharisees on, is he's saying, listen, you don't need to listen to my disciples for them to tell you who I am. Listen to nature. Listen to who nature says I am. Because if they stop, nature is going to tell you very quickly who I am. And it's interesting because earlier in the book of Luke, We get this in Luke chapter 8. We hear this account starting in verse 18. Oops, I'm sorry. That's in, in Romans. I skipped ahead too far. I need to go back here. Luke chapter 8 says this Now on one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat, and he said to them, Let's cross over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep, and a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. They came up to Jesus and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? But they were fearful and amazed, saying, to one another. Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Jesus speaks and the surging waves stop and become calm. Why? Because they know who he is. And when God speaks, all of nature obeys. Ladies and gentlemen, what is our problem. See, nature knows something that we don't, or at least something that a lot of people, a lot of Christians say they know, but they sure don't act like they know. We hit this in the book of James when we did our James series a while back at the beginning of the year, right? That's what the book of James is all about. The book of James is all about to summarize it in a phrase. The book of James says, so you say you believe, then do what he says right? James says, so you say you believe in God, then do it. Then do what he says. Then do the things. Act like you believe. And the problem that we have in the world today, y'all, is we have a bunch of Christians who say they believe in God. But fact of the matter is we don't obey him nearly as well as nature does. Nature doesn't, they they don't have the mind that we have, right? They're not intelligent. And yet, we use our intelligence to disobey God day after day after day, leaning on our ways, leaning on our understanding. And we miss what all of nature knows. There's this mystical passage in Romans 8. We miss this a lot because Romans 8's got a lot of incredible promises in it. It, but we've talked about those the past couple of weeks. We've hit on Romans eight twenty eight quite a bit. But earlier in the book of Romans, Paul says something and we tend to miss it because we just don't understand it. And in the midst of all these incredible promises, we don't take time to understand it. But look at what he says in Romans 8, starting in verse 18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the eagerly awaiting creation waits for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. All of creation, ladies and gentlemen, all of creation is waiting for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. Who is that? That's you and me, y'all. Why is creation waiting so eagerly for this? And it's because we messed it all up. All the way back in Genesis, Adam and Eve messed it all up. Why do the rocks have to cry out? Because we don't. The rocks are perfectly obedient. All of creation is perfectly obedient. And they're looking at us saying, you knuckleheads, would you get it together Figure this out so that we can be made perfect again. Because of us, all of creation is subjected to futility. All of creation is ruined and under the curse. God himself has subjected all of creation to futility. And why? And here is the greatest part. Paul continues that God subjected creation to futility in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only that, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our body. God has started that redemption, and He starts it with us, those of us who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. That is you and me, disciple of Jesus, and that can be you this very moment. If you have not made that decision to follow Jesus yet, you can start right now. And all it takes is a turn of your heart. All it takes is you saying, Jesus, I am ready to follow you. And then that's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit speaking in you. That is the first fruits of the Spirit. And from that moment on, you join with the rest of creation, with all of creation, in eagerly waiting in groaning within yourself eagerly waiting for Jesus Christ to come back and set all of this right and ladies and gentlemen that starts in you and me right now we do not wait until heaven we do not wait until the rapture we do not wait until armageddon to start this redemption process it starts now and the reason it can start now is because Jesus Christ has reversed this curse and i love this one i was talking to my friend ryan o'connor at the end of service last week and he told me you know my favorite reversal that jesus does in all of this i asked what what's that and he says you know the first person that jesus appears to outside of the tomb what does he appear as He appears as a gardener, right? When Mary is at the tomb, Mary turns around as she's getting ready to leave the tomb and she sees Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him. She thinks he's the gardener. And isn't that an absolute perfect reversal to bring us back into God's perfect garden? Jesus comes back as a gardener and says, welcome back in. Jesus shows up as a gardener to get us back into God's garden, but it doesn't end there. Let's look at this curse one more time. It says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. With hard labor you shall eat from it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, yet you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Adam is cursed because he chose to follow the voice of his wife instead of the voice of his God. So we start the reversal there. Whose voice did Jesus obey perfectly? God's. There is no other human voice that even swayed Jesus for a moment. Not even the voice of Satan himself when Satan came to tempt Jesus in the desert was enough to sway Jesus from obeying God's voice. Adam refused to obey God's voice. And God laid out this curse. Jesus joyfully surrendered to God's voice. And yet, the thorns with which God cursed the ground that Adam would toil over were forced on Jesus' head as a crown. The sweat by which God cursed the work of Adam's hand poured out as drops of blood from the brow of Jesus the night he was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the tree on which hung the fruit of Adam and Eve's undoing, the fruit of our disobedience, Jesus Christ hung from that tree, that cursed tree, that he might become the fruit of our salvation. And ladies and gentlemen, the ground, the dust to which Adam returned, the dust that will claim us all, that same dust held the very son of God, but only for 3 days. And because the ground could not hold Jesus, neither can the curse. He has given us the privilege to claim the same I love the new living translations version of 1 Corinthians 15:43 it says this our bodies are buried in brokenness but they will be raised in glory they are buried in weakness but they will be raised in strength Romans 5:12 through 15 tells us Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all mankind because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not counted against anyone when there is no law, nevertheless death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the violation committed by Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the gracious gift is not like the offense. For if by the offense of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. This gift that Jesus Christ has offered, Jesus Christ gave his life, died, was crucified on the cross, and rose again for our salvation, all for our salvation. This gift is for everyone who would call on his name, who would turn their hearts from sin and run after Jesus Christ and follow him. But it doesn't end there. Because once you start following Jesus... Guess what Jesus calls you to start doing? He calls you to join him in restoring his creation. One of my favorite commissions, Jesus gives commissions at the end of every gospel account. Every gospel writer gives an account of Jesus's final sending out of his disciples. And one of my favorite commissions comes from the book of Mark. It comes from, if you want to look it up, it's Mark 16, 15. But Jesus tells his disciples, past, present, and future, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. You know, the Holy Spirit really pulled back the veil on this verse for me a couple years ago. But I read this and I realized the gospel isn't just for people. The gospel doesn't just restore human souls. Now, look, if that was all the gospel did, that'd be pretty awesome, right? That would be enough. But y'all, the gospel is too powerful for that. The gospel is too glorious to just be preached to humans. The gospel is too powerful to just have its impact limited to our eternal souls. The gospel literally changes all of creation, all of creation and so we proclaim the gospel. Now I I've, I've told this story before. I've I've gotten some of you with this. But but when when I first read that, that day that I read that and the Holy Spirit showed me how powerful the gospel is. It was it was in the winter and I remember looking outside and everything was frozen outside, winter in Northwest Ohio, and there was this little bird that was sitting on our our Fire pit. We've got a little fire pit that had filled with water, and that water was frozen. And the bird was like tra- pecking at the ice, trying to get water from it. And so I thought, all right, all right, Jesus, the gospel is for all creation. I'm going to try this. I am going to proclaim the gospel to this bird by filling up a little cup of water and taking it and setting it outside and letting the bird drink from it. And so I did. I filled up this cup of water. I walked outside. I set it down and Wouldn't you know, that bird flew right over to that cup of water, perched on the side, and started drinking it and flew away. Isn't that incredible? And it would be even more incredible if it was actually true, because that's not what happened at all. The bird actually flew away as soon as I opened the door, but I love to tell that story that way because it's one of those, you know, hook line and sinkers. I get people reeling in and they're like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. And then, you know, blow it off for them. But here's the thing. It's not about end results, right? It doesn't matter whether that bird came and took a drink from that cup right away, or maybe it came back. I'd like to think that it came back later and took a drink from that cup eventually, but it doesn't matter, right? What matters is obedience, Because the fact of the matter is, now look, you know, this is where we talked about at the beginning. Some people call this political, right? Well, look at all these tree huggers. Y'all, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, he's called you to be a tree hugger. I know that's going to be woke to some people, but he has called you to rule over all of creation. That means being kind to nature. How do you proclaim the gospel? Look, I'm going to burst some of y'all's bubbles here, but I don't think animals have eternal souls. There's zero biblical evidence for that. So I don't think you go home and you grab your dog by the face and you preach the gospel to your dog because you need your dog to make a decision for Christ. That'd be a great way for churches to get their numbers up for, you know, salvations, but I don't think it works that way. But what do we do? How do we proclaim the gospel to creation? And what we do is we are kind. We proclaim the gospel with our actions. We put water outside for a bird to drink, even if that bird doesn't drink from it. We recycle as best we can. We limit our carbon footprint, if that's what it takes. Don't use plastic straws, whatever it is. I'm not trying to bust anybody over this, but we can preach the gospel to all of creation. And we do it through obedience to the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit telling you to do? How is the Holy Spirit asking you to take care of creation? Being kind to your dogs, stop abusing animals, you know, whatever it is. But how is God leading you to proclaim the gospel to all creation? We are all called to proclaim the gospel. And that starts today. There's that popular hill song, worship song. It's called, So Will I. It says, if the stars were made to worship, so will I. Ladies and gentlemen, all of creation was made to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, was made to worship God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. Will you declare with me today, if the stars were made to worship, so will I. Amen? Amen. I want to thank you for listening to the Gospel House podcast If you are free this Sunday, if you don't have a church home or if if you don't have anywhere to land, we would love to have you at the Gospel House for Easter Sunday. Come check us out. Our services are Sunday mornings at 930. We would love to see you, meet you, shake your hand, and see you in person. If not, we pray you would have a blessed Easter, uh, that you would proclaim the gospel to all of creation, and that everything you do, everything that we do as disciples of Jesus Christ, would make us look more like him until the day he comes for his church. Have a great week, y'all.